0: Well, thank you so much, Cody and the worship team, for leading us in worship this morning. And y'all, it is so great to see all of you here today. Uh, If you've been with us, you know that we are in a series right now titled Entrusted, as we are walking through the book of 2 Timothy, so I'd ask you to go ahead, if you have a copy of God's Word with you, uh, to either turn over to or tap on, however you prefer, to get to God's Word. Turn to 2 Timothy chapter 2, and we're going to be looking beginning in verse 3 and following. 2 Timothy chapter 2, beginning in verse 3. Now, before we jump into the text, I know that being in this area, there are a decent amount of people who are businessmen or businesswomen who own their own business. I know that uh, even with the school, I know there's plenty of college students who are majoring in business. Well, there's a term that is used in marketing, a phrase that uh, many maybe recognize. It's, It's a phrase called a call to action, a call to action. And what it really is, is it is a marketing strategy where whenever you are marketing a product, the goal isn't just to give somebody information. The goal is to elicit a response. So if you are online and you're on Amazon, you will notice that as you're on Amazon, there'll be something that says add to your cart, which many of us probably click often. There is buy now. There are other things that call you to action to do something at that moment. You may notice if you read something on a website, almost every website does this. At some point, something pops up, and it says, subscribe here. Click to subscribe. Push this to subscribe. It is a call to action. They don't just want to give you information. They want you to do something in light of that information. Well, what we've seen so far in the book of 2 Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 1, Paul is encouraging Timothy. He encourages him and, and encourages him about what he remembers about him. He's praying for him. He's thinking about him. He wishes he could see him. He reminds him that God has given you a gift. Fan this gift into flame. He's encouraging him by saying, follow the pattern I've given you. Guard the gospel I've given to you. And then in chapter two, he moves from encouragement to instruction. He moves from saying, hey, here's the information to a call to action. And that's the title of the sermon this morning. It is simply that, call to action. A call to action. And what I'm proposing this morning is that as followers of Jesus, I hope to show you, Paul says to Timothy this, what I'm proposing is as followers of Jesus, we are called to a life of radical action. The gospel, as we saw last week, has been entrusted to us. It's been given to us, and we are called to act. As we walk through this, I want you to see several things. One, do you recognize your calling as a follower of his? And two, I want you to have some way you can evaluate, and I think Paul gives us that. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1, Paul says it this way, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. Friends, that's a call for all believers. Walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. And I believe Paul helps us see, one, what our calling is and how we can walk in a manner worthy. Let's pray and then we'll jump in. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much, Lord, for this day. God, we thank you for your grace that is so abundant in our lives. God, we thank you for just the way you love us, God, the way you care for us. God, I thank you for this opportunity right now to gather together, Lord, to open up your word. Lord, help us be reminded in this moment that every time your word is open, it is you who is speaking. God, these words that Paul wrote, he will tell us later in chapter 3, they were inspired by you. They were breathed out by you. Father, these are your words for your people at all times. And so help us, Lord, see what you want us to see, hear what you want us to hear, and accept what you want us to accept this morning. Father, I pray, Lord, please put your words in my mouth and keep my words out of yours. And ask all these things, Father, in your precious, in your holy son's name, amen. Amen. Let's read verses three through seven as we begin. Paul says, share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. It is the hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. I think you can already tell that Paul has a sense of urgency. I told you, as you read through the book of 2 Timothy, you need to be reminded that Paul is in prison Paul's not just in any prison. Paul is on his deathbed. He knows he's going to be executed. He knows most likely it's going to be soon. And so as he writes, he writes clearly. He writes concisely. He writes in a compelling manner. But he also uses brevity, he doesn't use a lot of words. I think it's interesting. Whenever you want to convey a message to someone, oftentimes the best way to do it is not to actually use words, right? I'm sure many of you have had a conversation with someone before. Where, as you were talking to them, you realize that they were not jiving with what you were saying. What you were saying wasn't computing. All the wives are doing this right now because they understand the struggle, right? Like you understand what it's like to talk to someone and they're not understanding. Parents, we feel that way sometimes with our kids. We're saying something and we just don't know if they're really getting what we're trying to say. This conversation can happen in many different ways in our house, but one of the main ways it does is, is, is my wife is, has been for nine and a half years been nesting at our house. I know that's a term typically for the beginning of marriage or after you're pregnant, but she likes to nest at all times and see what areas of the house we can put this here and that there and pictures here and and do all sorts of interior design type things. Well, as she likes to explain to me what she's hoping to do in our house, oftentimes she realizes what she's saying is not computing. I need help. And so there's been different ways she's done this. Sometimes she actually draws it on a sheet of paper. "Here's Here's my vision, as she calls it, and she shows it to me. Or she'll say, look, this is what I'm talking about, and show me a picture. And all of us know this, a picture is worth A 1,000 words, right? Now I want you to notice, what is Paul doing here? Paul just is is using very short, almost like jumbled language together, putting together some different roles. The whole purpose of this is he's saying you need to think over these things. I'm communicating a lot to you, but I'm doing it in three small pictures. Take these and think about them. And what you're going to see this morning is we'll walk back through this. I want you to see three metaphors that Paul uses for what it looks like to live as a Christian. What are you called to as a follower of Jesus Christ? Here are three pictures. Look at the pictures and you'll see what your calling is. And then, secondly, he'll follow that up by giving you three motivations three things that will keep you going and living out this mission. So, three metaphors will be the first thing we look at. The first metaphor is this it's the metaphor of a devoted soldier. It's the metaphor, the picture, if you will, of a devoted soldier. Now, think about this. I'm not just going to tell you the picture and then let's move on. I want you to think about it. Picture it. If you close your eyes and you see a soldier and you think, what what should model, what what characteristics should a soldier possess, what comes to mind? I grew up in a military family. My father was a lieutenant colonel in the National Guard, a JAG officer. My brother was in the military. I remember whenever my dad would come out in uniform, and it just has a look to it, right? Like a soldier, you get this idea of loyalty. Loyalty of devotion, of honorability, someone who's trained, someone who's focused, someone who has a mission, right? Paul says that's what it looks like to follow Jesus. Think of a soldier. Look at how he says it in verse 3. He brings up a topic he's talked about already in chapter 1, this topic of suffering. And as he's in prison, he writes to his mentee, Timothy, he says, share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. Think about that picture. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. You see, a good soldier knows that whenever he signs the dotted line to be in the military, he doesn't say, hey, I want to put a few exemptions here. Like, I don't go overseas. I don't do this. Well, if you sign the dotted line to be full-time in the military, you sign the dotted line, and whatever they say goes, right? You don't get your exemption clauses. A good soldier recognizes that, that what they list up for, they are all in. He's saying, Timothy, so are you. But think about this as well. A good soldier also, whenever the fight comes, does a good soldier turn the other way and run? No, what does a good soldier do? Stands there and fights. He says, this is the picture of what it looks like to follow Jesus, Timothy. Share in suffering as a good soldier. Remember, whenever you gave your life to Christ, you said, God, wherever you want me, whenever you want me, however you want me, my life is yours. Whenever hard times come, you stand there and you endure as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. Don't retreat when the battle comes. Then he expounds even more so and more specifically what he's talking about whenever he's talking about a soldier in verse 4. Verse 4, he says, No soldier gets entangled, held back in civilian pursuits, since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. Think about that. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits. This literally means life's affairs, means other things. Like you have one focus whenever you're a soldier know my orders. Carry out my orders. Do my orders. If you are a distracted soldier in the middle of combat, you most likely will get shot, right? If you're in the middle of a battlefield, you don't get distracted. You don't look over some other way. You pay attention to the battlefield. He said no soldier would get entangled in civilian pursuits because he has one aim. Please the one who has enlisted you. Timothy, you must be focused. You must be single-minded. You must keep your eye on the prize. Focus. Every single day, recognize you are here to please God. That's your number one. We oftentimes forget that the devil has two ways he wants to work in you and my life. Sure, oftentimes we think the devil wants me to be really bad, right? We think the devil wants me to, to, to fall into sin. Well, well, that's deceit. That is one thing the devil wants you to do. He wants to deceive you. All sin is just a lie. That's all it is. It's the lie that I can please myself better than God, God can, or it's the lie that, you know what, God, I really do think this is what's going to bring me happiness over what you Somebody's going to bring me happiness. All sin is is just a lie, hence why the devil is the father of all lies. But we often think if, if I'm going to get derailed in my life, it's going to be because I fall into some heinous sin. Well, I remember growing up, my mom would say a mantra to me over and over and over again. It's ingrained and etched in my brain, which I think was her whole purpose. She used to always say, Mary, if the devil can't make you bad, he will make you busy. In other words, the devil has a goal of deceiving you to live falsely, but the, goal, the devil also has a goal of distracting you. And friends, I'll be honest, I think that is much more powerful than deceit because it's not easy to see. I don't know many people that are distracted that keep their mind and say, oh man, I got distracted, I got off the road. No, no, distractions happen and oftentimes you don't realize until you're down the road and you go, man, how did I get off the path, right? If the devil wants to come after you and me, his primary means, in my opinion, would be to make us be distracted, to distract us with civilian pursuits. Y'all, this is just life's affairs. In other words, the devil's goal is to take things that aren't bad things, sometimes they're even really good things, but he wants to take good things and make them become God things. And hear me, if a good thing in your life becomes a God thing, an idol in your life, it becomes a bad thing instantly. Work is not a bad thing. If it becomes your idol, it is. Your family, you're called to be devoted to them, to love them, but if it becomes your idol, it is. Your hobbies, if they become your idol, they are. Your family, your sport, plans, busyness, work, school, career, future, whatever it might be, life's affairs. Don't be so entangled in them that you forget you've been given today to please one person, and that's God. Please the one who enlisted you. He says, Timothy, as a soldier, you have one primary responsibility, to please him. I love the way Solomon says it in Proverbs chapter 4. Verse 25, he puts it like this. He says, let your eyes look directly forward and your gaze be straight before you. Reading this and thinking about this this week, immediately the first thought that came to my mind is the Kentucky Derby. This is probably the first year I ever watched it and genuinely cared about what was going on. One of the things that you notice, and I knew beforehand, one of the things that you notice is every single horse that races has, I've heard two people call them different things, blinkers or blinders on, that are over their eyes to do what? I actually read an article where apparently there's a lot of things it does. I'm not going to expound all that for you there are two primary things that they do. It keeps them focused of what is right in front of them. It keeps them from getting distracted and oftentimes spooked or feared and keeps them from running the race. It keeps their eyes straight ahead so they know I'm in the middle of a race and I'm not going to become distracted. Friends, is that you in your Christian walk with Christ? Think about this. What Paul is telling Timothy is, Timothy, whenever people think of you as a follower of Jesus, they should think, man, he's as devoted as a soldier to Jesus, as that man is to Rome. Paul knew a lot about soldiers. He spent a lot of time around them. He said, your aim should be like a soldier. Please the one who enlisted you. That's metaphor number one. Look at the second one, verse five. He moves from, from the devoted soldier to an athlete. Verse five, he says, an athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. So first metaphor is that of a devoted soldier the second metaphor is that of a disciplined athlete, a disciplined athlete. Again, I want you to picture in your mind, whenever you think of a bona fide athlete, a professional athlete, because this is who he's talking about. I'll get to that in a minute. But professional athletes, what do you picture about them? They're disciplined, right? They make sacrifices. They have goals. They have purpose. They have aim. They're determined. They're passionate. They're hardworking, right? Right? You won't make it as an athlete if you're not one of those things. He's saying, Timothy, let that mark your life as a follower of Christ. Be that disciplined. Be that hardworking. Make the sacrifices needed to follow Jesus. Now, this passage here has had a massive impact on my life for a long time. But this week, I heard something I'd never heard before as I was doing research in this, and I'd always been confused because the wording just seems odd. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. It almost just sounds like follow the rules obey the rules, but many people that I, I've read have just talked about it's, the focus is discipline, and I never understood until this week. I actually found three different resources that affirmed this, is during Paul's day, the Greek Olympics were massive. I mean, he would have been well acquainted with them. Timothy would have been well acquainted with them. What you and I probably don't know about the Greek Olympics is in order to compete, you had to sign a contract to compete in the Olympics 10 months before the Olympics, and in, in that oath that you had to make, you had to follow a strict regimen for how you would work out and be trained and be prepared. And before you could race in the Olympics, you had to say if you followed the plan or if you did not. If you did not follow the 10-month training program, they would say you're disqualified. You don't even get to run. And so think of that backdrop, Paul telling Timothy, just like the athletes that you know of, the ones who are disciplined, the ones who give maximum effort, the ones who have to focus in this, the ones who have made an oath, therefore they're going to do it, an athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules, the discipline, the regimen, the effort that's involved. I can remember in, in high school, one of my best friends, I, I went to a really small school. I've told many of that. I graduated with 34 people. So I went to a really small high school. And I, I, pretty much if you were in the school and you wanted to play a sport, it was kind of like, you know, we at least let you try out and most likely you'd have a chance to make it. You might not get to practice much or whatever, but they'd at least let you on the team. And one of my good friends loved to play sports. He lived right down the road from me. We played sports together all the time. He loved to play sports. There was just one one negative thing about that, and it's that he was not good at any of the sports, really. Now, he got better at baseball his junior and senior year. He started getting better as a catcher. But he loved basketball because that was what was big in our town. But poor guy, he just was not very good. I remember at one point we had 11 people on our team. There's one practice where he didn't get to practice at all. And we're walking out, and he asked the coach. He says, Coach, how come you didn't let me in? He said, he said, I'm trying to focus on the important things right now. Like just a complete cut to Jamie, like, oh, my gosh. Well, oops, I said his name. I hope he doesn't listen to this. But, but <laughs> he knows this. He was standing right beside me. But he, he tried really hard. He just wasn't very good. But the one thing about Jamie that you knew is there was not a person in the room that would outwork him. He was a workhorse. I will never forget playing at Cedar Creek High School in Ruston, Louisiana. It's called the Brick House, which is an awful name for a basketball gym because of throwing up bricks. But it's called the Brick House. It's made of bricks. We're in a JV game, and Jamie runs to the save a basketball, dives, catches a ball, throws it behind his head, and just, I'm talking about forehead to the brick wall. He gets up, and he's just stumbling around. That is Jamie in a nutshell. Like, that is what he would do. Maximum effort, no matter what, he would give his everything. Friends, do you realize that that's what the Bible calls us to do to follow Jesus? Give your everything. Pour yourself out for him. In 1 Timothy, Paul's already told Timothy, he says, train yourself in godliness. For while bodily training has some value, godliness has value in every way because it holds a promise for the current life you're living and for the life that is to come. Train yourself in godliness. This is not easy. This is hard work, isn't it? To train yourself in something? The athlete is the picture. I love the way Tony Marita says it this way. He says, in America, millions of us admire athletes, but few of us actually imitate them. Many enjoy their performances. Many would like to be as good as them, but few will put in the effort that they do. Few actually will watch and then afterwards go and attempt to do their training. And unfortunately, many Christians want God's blessing on their life without playing by his rules. This isn't to earn anything. Rather, it is a desire for godliness. It's a desire to live for Christ. It is a desire to receive the crown that he says he will give to all those who follow him. I said this several months ago in in a message, and unfortunately it's true. I heard somebody encapsulate American Christian culture and the church culture by saying this. Christians in America somehow seem to worship their work work at their play, and play in their worship. Hear that again. He said, Christians in America somehow seem to worship their work, work at their play, and play in their worship. Friends, let that never be said of you. Let that never be said of me. May we put out maximum effort to live for God. There's no shortcuts in sports. There's no shortcuts in godliness. And this is what Paul is trying to tell him. There is a way an athlete must compete in order to win. There is also a way that a follower of Jesus must live in order to win. Live God's way by God's rules because you want to follow him, because you want to live for him, because you love him. Let it not be because of a lack of effort. And the sad truth is, is athletes today do this for a perishable grief. Friends, the truth is, is you're not going to know who won the state championship in Murray 10 years from now. Most likely you won't remember, right? You don't remember any of the guys who did all this work for the Greek Olympics. At least I don't think any of you do. These things pass away, but he's saying work in your relationship with Christ to receive something that doesn't pass away. So I would ask you, are you disciplined in your training of knowing God? Do you put out maximum effort in your faith to know and follow and serve Jesus? To be even more nuanced, do you put maximum effort into knowing God's word, reading it, studying it, memorizing it, meditating on it? Could it be said of you, you put in effort, and maximum effort to know the word of God. To learn more about him. What about in prayer? What about in serving? What about in sharing the gospel? What about in fasting? What about in fellowship? What about in hospitality? This is not a list of to-dos. This is an honorable opportunity you get to be a part of if you say, I want to follow Jesus. If we think that he is worth it to die to ourself and give him our life, we should do it his way. I know, I want to live in such a way, I get before God and he says, well done. And did you realize the parable where that has even told us? The parable of the talents, where God has given this person five, this person two, this person one. The person who gave five talents worked and produced five more talents. And he says, well done, enter into your rest. Enter into the kingdom. The second one, produced two more talents. He says, well done, enter into your rest. The last one doesn't produce anything. He says, what? Did you have not at least done something with that? And he casts them out into the place of gnashing of teeth and utter darkness. And to me, whenever you sign up to follow Jesus, it's not like a contract, no. But if you want to be about that life, then be about that life. Follow Jesus. Put in effort. Be disciplined like an athlete. Can someone look at your life and say they are as disciplined as an athlete in their pursuit of Christ? That's the second metaphor. Going on to the third, verse 6. It moves on to the hardest one, in my opinion. He says, it is the hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. Think of all of them. I think we know what this one looks like in our area, right? First, he says, be as devoted as a soldier. Secondly, as disciplined as an athlete. And third, be as diligent as a farmer. Be as diligent as a farmer. I think this is interesting because it's so vastly different from the first two. Let me explain why. The soldier receives honor. The soldier should receive honor, right? They, they receive the star, they receive the Medal of Honor, they receive rewards for what they do. They, they are looked at and revered in many ways. The athlete, I think we can say that they very much so are revered. They get the shoe deals, the press conferences, all these things. But think about the farmer. The farmer's like the exact opposite, right? I've never seen an ESPN special where somebody's out there at the microphone, so Bob, how are the crops going this year, right? Never seen a press conference out at the farm. I've never seen people out there lined up during crop season to get the farmer's autograph. Like, hey, sign this for me. I've never seen Nike sign a shoe deal with the farmer because of the crops, right? Actually, a farmer is a picture of something quite the opposite. Picture a farmer, what do you see? What is he telling Timothy? Picture a farmer. He says it is the hard working farmer who deserves the first share of the crops. Think of a farmer, you think of diligence. You think of a hard-working person. You think of persistence, of patience, of fortitude, right, of resolve, someone who's going to keep going at it over and over and over and over again regardless of what they see, right? The farmer is the best example of endurance and perseverance. A farmer is often the first to wake up, the last to go to sleep. A farmer has to constantly be working, plowing, sowing, tending, weeding, reaping, storing. A farmer has to be ready for anything, whether it's weather, frost, pests, floods, disease, animals, whatever it might be. He has to be ready to, to fight against those things. And a farmer must have patience and endure. It's a hard job, right? I really agree with Chuck Swindoll. He's a pastor in, in Frisco, Texas. He says, when I drive by a farm and look out the window, I see just enough to know that I want to keep on driving. I don't want any part of that. I feel that. Friends, this is what Paul says, Timothy, this is what it looks like, to faithfully serve Jesus, be like the hard-working farmer. What's the point? Work hard. Regardless of what you see, keep going. Regardless of what's going on around you, keep doing. Regardless if in your job you're doing it the right way and people around you are doing it the wrong way and they seem to be benefiting, stay the course. Regardless of whether your kids are listening to you and if you're trying to give godly instruction or not, stay the course. Regardless of whether you've been praying about something for 10, 15, 20 years, stay the course. Regardless of whether you feel anything or not whenever you read God's word, trust God whenever he says that he's imparting wisdom to you. He's blessing you. Even whenever you don't understand it, stay the course. Regardless of what's going on in your marriage right now, stay the course. You could go through over and over and over and over again. The hardworking farmer says regardless of what it looks like, trust in God. Keep on going. Do not let up. Paul talks about this in another spot. In Galatians chapter 6, he says it even more pointedly. If you go back even further to, chapter, uh, to verse 7, he says, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever someone sows, that, that person will also reap. The one who sows to the flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. You live for yourself, that's what you'll reap. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And then verse 9, he says, and let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. Friends, oftentimes the thing that we have the smallest amount of resolve in is our relationship with God, right? I've missed a meal several times in my life. I've never said, well, I guess I missed a meal today. I might as well start doing that every day after this. But so often we may stop reading God's Word and we go, well, you know, I'm behind now. It feels feels like I'm going to have to work harder to get back. We do this with simple things, right? Now, resolve. resolve, we miss a week of church, or then two weeks of church, or then two months of church, and before we know it, it's almost hard to start going back. Friends, the farmer is the picture of saying, do what you know God wants you to do, regardless of how you feel, regardless of what it looks like. Do it, keep going, do it. I'm reminded of what Paul tells the church in Corinth. Therefore, my beloved brothers, He tells them strictly, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. In other words, what you do now will reap benefits if you do not give up. Keep doing Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. What one sows, they will reap. So the question that Paul's telling Timothy, the question to you is, could somebody look at your life and liken your life as a follower of Christ to that of a diligent farmer? That's a challenge, right? All three of these are challenges. And I would tell you, be reminded at the very beginning of this chapter, verse 1, he says, be strengthened by the grace that's in Christ Jesus. He's saying it's through this that you can actually do these things, but you must do them. Living for Christ is not easy. It is never easy. Jesus doesn't say it will be easy, but he says it'll be worth it. As I've heard one guy put it, following Christ is just a long obedience in the same direction. You repent and you turn and you just keep walking. You keep going. These are the metaphors that Paul wants to give Timothy. But I want you to notice what he wants him to do with them. Look at verse 7. He tells Timothy, he says, Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. What's he saying? He's saying meditate over these words. Take these pictures, hang them up, put them where you can see them, and think over them, and God will continue to give you understanding to do them. Keep them in front of you. Think over what I'm saying. Friends, to to know God's word, we must meditate on it. There is no other way. You'll find it odd that the Bible doesn't talk about reading the word. It doesn't talk much about studying the word. It talks a lot about meditating on the word. The word meditate is the same word used for a lion who's growling over its prey after it's got it. You stay there for a while and you feast. Come to the word of God and feast. Meditate on it. Think about it. But once again, we struggle with that, right? We oftentimes don't have much resolve. We treat God's Word a lot like McDonald's versus Patty's. In other words, we come to God's Word, and we're like, can I get a number two with a side of encouragement really fast? Can I get this with a little bit of joy? I need a a quick verse. I need a life verse. I need something real quick to come to me in my time. Give it to me so I can go on with what I'm doing. But God's Word is not like that. God's Word is a lot more like a filet mignon, if you cook that, you know you've got to marinate it, it takes time to cook, and you've got to stay there a little while. Friends, this is the call of God's word. Think over it. Mull over it. A simple challenge for you I'd give you in the middle of this sermon is maybe what you need to do this week is take those three words, soldier, athlete, farmer, and post them somewhere where you can see them for the weeks and days ahead. There's a time in my life whenever I first got into ministry, I had a friend of mine who made me, he just got into woodworking, and he made me three blocks of wood, essentially, sir, slats of wood, I put them up in my office, where every time I walked into my office, the first thing I saw was soldier, athlete, farmer. It's time to get it. Maybe you need to put them up in front of you. Think over them. Think about them. Pray through them, and God will give you understanding. He'll lead you through the change. So he begins with three metaphors, but then he moves on to three motivations for why you should live this way, why you should give your life for this, why you should suffer for the gospel, why you should be disciplined and devoted and diligent in your following Christ. And we see this in verses 8 and following. Let's begin in verse 8 and 9. Verses 8 and 9. Paul says, remember Jesus Christ. Remember. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal, but the word of God is not bound. We see the first motivation for living this way, number one, is simply this, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He gives him these pictures, these metaphors, and then he says, think over these things, and then the first thing next he says is, remember Jesus. Think about Jesus. He says so much right here in just three short little phrases, remember Jesus, risen from the dead. What's he saying? Don't forget that Jesus left heaven, came here, endured so many things right just for our sake he was rich but he became poor for our sake he went from heaven to here and he died in our place he walked the hard road in our place he died but then he rose again remember our risen lord and savior follow after him then he says the offspring of david what's his point here is he saying he was the promised king in other words what god says he will do he will do he sent Jesus. He's the promised king, the crucified and resurrected Christ and the promised king. Look to Jesus. There's so much we could say about this, but I think that another author has already penned it pretty perfectly in Hebrews chapter 12, where he says this Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. He says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Sounds a lot like what Paul just said, right? But notice the same thing. Verse 2, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So therefore, we must do what? Verse 3, consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Consider him. Look to him. Friends, you know you you know how you stay disciplined like a soldier, like an athlete, like a farmer, is you keep your eyes focused on Jesus. You remember what Jesus did. He came and lived as the perfect example of the soldier living to please God, nobody else. He wasn't worried about that. As an athlete, disciplined, very disciplined in what he did, where he went, how he acted. As the farmer, what he did here, people looked at him as a failure, and yet what happened after he left? Seeds were planted, and then crops came in, and you and I are here today because of it. He says, look to Jesus, the one who gave up riches, gave up heaven, gave up perfection, gave up comfort, gave up ease to come here and live for you, that you might give your life to him. Remember Jesus. Look to Jesus. In other words, live your life with him in mind. Me, Emily, and our kids went out to the Arboretum this week. Whenever I mean, we were walking, we, we oftentimes park beside Murray, and we walk in kind of from the back part there. And as we walk in, I see a bench there that I'm, I'm standing there waiting on the kids get, to get closer to me, and I, I read the little, the little emblem on top of it that says, In Memory Of, and it says a person's name, and says a few nice things about them. I want you to think about that. Whenever somebody has something in memory of someone, someone else, we have this with our prayer garden, right? Whenever it's in memory of someone else, It's for you to remember that person, to remember their life, to remember them. You know what can significantly change an in-memory-of? Is whenever somebody has given their life for you, that in-memory-of changes a little bit. You're not just remembering their life, you're remembering the life that they gave you. If someone were to die in your place, you're not just remembering what they did, you're remembering what you now can do only because of them, right? And building a monument would not even be enough to show your gratitude for someone who gave their life for you. Instead, what should you do? You should say, I'm not going to waste the life that's been given to me. They gave themselves up for me. I'm not going to waste this time. I realize my life was bought by someone else. They sacrificed in my place. This is the point. Let your life be a monument, a memorial, a constant in memory of him. Why do I do what I do? In memory of him. Why do I do what I do? In memory of him. He gave his life for me that I might have life, and my life is his. We're called to live, to honor, and glorify him. Let your life be in a memory of Christ monument for the world to see, which is what we see Paul doing, right? Look again at verse 9. He just says, remember Jesus, and he says, for which I am suffering. I'm bound with chains as a criminal. Y'all, that word criminal is used one other time in the Bible, Luke 23. You know, that word criminal is used to describe, it's to describe the two people hanging on each side of Jesus. There are other words for criminal that Paul could have used. He said, no, this is how I'm being treated, like these guys. This criminal would have been the person who was was worthy of of capital punishment, someone who, who should be dying. And Paul's saying, that's how I'm being treated, because of Jesus. But then he says something very interesting, which leads to the next motivation, He says, I'm suffering, bound with chains as a criminal, but notice what he boasts in. But the word of God is not bound. I may be bound, but the word of God is not, which I think gives another motivation, which is the second one. First, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Secondly, the eternal boundless word of God. The eternal boundless word of God. He says, I am bound, but it is not. It is still is working, even in the midst of my change. Philippians chapter one, he says something very similar. Don't feel sorry for me because I'm chained right now. This has actually worked out to spread the gospel to other people. And Paul's even saying, yes, I may die, but the word of God will not. It will live on. The word of God is not bound. It's a motivation because you can know with certainty what you do now in following Christ will echo into eternity. It has eternal effects. I can give you story after story. This is probably one of my favorite topics to talk about. It's times whenever the word of God tried to be trampled or stifled and then it ended up backfiring in some way or some incredible story comes out of it and there's story upon story regarding this. But I read one this week that I'd never heard before and I think it's it's powerful. I'd love to read it to you. The way the author says this is power is Paul was powerfully stating the absolute freedom of the word of God and we see so many examples of this. He goes on to talk about in the 1930s under the reign of Joseph Stalin, whenever there was the Communist Party in the Soviet Union. He said, if you don't remember, in the 1930s, there was a point in time where Stalin ordered a purging of all Bibles from the land and for either putting all Christians in a camp or killing them. And he begins to tell this story about how in Straverpol, Russia, this order was carried out with particular vengeance. Thousands of Bibles were confiscated, and multitudes of believers were sent to labor camps where many of them were being killed as enemies of the state. You fast forward a few years after Stalin, after the fall of communism, there was a missionary organization named Co-Mission who sent a team to Strapul to give them the gospel. Well, this team shows up, not knowing the history of what happened in that area, and they get there, and they're expecting Bibles to come from Moscow, but they're having a hard time getting Bibles sent to them. So while they're there and they're talking about this, they have a local person who said, hey, you probably don't know this, but... 20 years ago, there was a time where they collected all of these Bibles and they put them in an old warehouse. I don't know what they ever did with them. So they prayed for a while and finally they went to, I don't know if it was a government official or who, but they went and asked, are there still Bibles in this area, in this land? And somebody said, yes, there actually are. And they go to this warehouse and the warehouse is full of Bibles. What's interesting after that is, is the government hired some people to unload them, get them all out, and there was a particular boy who went there who labels himself, he was college age. He says, I was a skeptic. I was hostile towards Christianity, angry about stuff that had happened in my past and my family's past, and I was was an agnostic at best. I came there that day for a day's wage to help unload Bibles. But as they were unloading Bibles, quickly they found that this guy was nowhere to be found. They don't know where he went. One of the people from the missionary team went and they found him curled up in a ball in a corner and he's just boohooing his eyes out. And they walk over to him, they go, What's going on? And he takes the Bible in his hand, he flips it around and shows him the inside cover, and he goes, that's my grandmother's signature. That's my grandmother who died here because of Christianity. And that guy gave his life to Christ. Friends, you can bind people, you can't bind the Word of God. You can try and stifle God's people, you can't stifle the Word of God. The way R. Kent Hughes says it. God's word can be no more chained than God himself. What goes out will come back with fruit. What goes out, God will use. There are two eternal things on this planet, the souls of men and women and the word of God. It will live on for eternity. Friends, what is a motivation for living like a soldier, athlete, and a farmer is that what you do will never have an end. What you sow now will never have an end. And Paul says, be motivated by this, advance the word of God, live out the mission, do it now and do it with discipline, not being afraid of suffering, which leads to verse 10, the final motivation he gives. He says, therefore, in light of this, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Here we see the third motivation for living on mission. And it's this, current and future believers in Christ. He says the elect, the elect in Christ, those who will repent and place their faith in Jesus. He says endure everything for their sake, for them. Yo, I can't understand it any more than you can, but all I know is that suffering is a means by which God brings out salvation in people. I can explain to you, but all I can tell you is that you look at history in the hardest Seasons of persecution for the church was whenever it flourished the most. I can't explain it to you. I can't explain it to you why Jesus decided to come and suffer in our place, but what I can tell you is simply this. He chose to do that, and through his suffering, we've been given life. Friends, it is through the blood, sweat, and tears of Christians that other people will come to know him. I believe God is sovereign in salvation, absolutely, but over and over and over again, you and I have a grand responsibility, and what we do matters. It has eternal effects. He says, God is sovereign, but you must go and do the work. In other words, live dedicated, focused lives for Christ for the sake of others. Live disciplined, purposeful lives for the sake of others. Live diligent, hard-working lives for the sake of others. We do it for God's glory, amen, but we do it for the love of other people, that they might come to know him. And notice how he puts it. He doesn't just say that they could get saved or some, some verbiage like that. Look at how he puts it. He says, I everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. How do you get eternal glory? How do you win the race? You run it. In other words, striving in this, you not only help lead people to Christ, you train them in what it looks like. You show them what it looks like. We want to bring people to Christ and help them become bona fide believers in the place in which they are. How you and I live today matters. Paul says, think on these metaphors. Be as devoted as a soldier, as disciplined as an athlete, as diligent as a farmer, and do all of this while steadfastly looking to Christ, knowing his word will do the work and for the love and concern of others. Paul says, Timothy, it's time to act. And friends, I would tell you, the same call is to you. The question is, is will you? Will you? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to open up your word, Lord, to hear what you have to say to us. Father, I now, I pray that all of us would not just check out because the sermon's over, that all of us would recognize we have a responsibility to not be a hearer, but a doer. But help us ask the question right now, how do I need to respond in light of this message? Father, give us grace in the areas where we fail you. God, help us obey you. Help us do this. And we ask all these things in your son's name. Amen. Amen. Now, there's a lot of different things that I could ask you in order to respond, but I'm going to keep it short. I want to ask you, which of these metaphors stands out to you as the area you're like, I've got to change this area of my life? Which of these metaphors, as we talk through it, do you believe the Lord is convicting you in? I'm sure as we walk through that, there's plenty of people who feel conviction over, I don't look like a soldier or an athlete or a farmer. Okay, well, God gives grace, repent and go. How do you take steps? You can't go from a two to a 10 in one day. Take small steps. What are some little changes you can make in your life to start doing this more and more? How do you need to act? Secondly, I'd ask you, as as you walk through the motivations, maybe the Lord convicted you. Maybe part of the reason that, that you're being distracted is you're not looking to Jesus, focusing on Jesus, being reminded of Jesus. Thinking about Jesus. Friends, I tell you, every day you wake up and your feet hit the ground, say, Lord, today is to please you. And then do it. Do it. Live for him. Maybe you need to be reminded that what you do now will live on forever. If you follow God's word, it's like planting seeds. Maybe you need to be reminded this morning that the way that God chooses to reach the world is through his people. What's God's plan for reaching the world with the gospel? It's you me. Are you being responsible in that? Are you letting that motivate you to Christ-like living? Maybe today you need to repent and respond in some way in that regard. Lastly, I would ask you, maybe today I'm talking about these things, and you go, Merrick, I can't really replicate. I can't pass on something I don't possess. I would ask you first and foremost, are you a servant of Jesus? Are you a disciple of Jesus? You can't be a faithful follower of Christ if you're not a follower of his. Do you recognize what Jesus has done for you? Do you realize that your sin has been atoned for by him? And the calling he calls you to is repent. Turn from your sin. Turn from having yourself on the throne in your heart. Give your life to Jesus and live for him. Maybe this morning that's what you need to do. By God's grace, you can do that where you are. Simply by repenting, saying, God, I don't want to live for myself anymore. I don't want my sin anymore. I want to place my faith in you. The altar will be open if you want to come pray. Maybe you want to stay seated when everybody else stands and just pray. Maybe you want to come talk to me or Braden. But I would challenge you this morning, respond however you feel led to do so.